Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 59. Welcome back. The purpose of this podcast is to cover philosophy, psychology, and science in an effort to demonstrate that we are much more than products of blind materialistic naturalism, which means there is more going on here than Darwinian evolution, i.e. survival of the fittest and genetic mutations. And it has to do with mind, a.k.a. spirit. In German, those two terms are combined in one word, Geist. And in this podcast, I put special significance and emphasis on the great 19th century philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, who, by the way, just celebrated a birthday on Saturday, August 27th. He was born 252 years ago on that day. First, some background. I personally never got into TM, Transcendental Meditation, back in the late 1960s when it was all the rage and it seemed everybody was doing it. You know, the Beatles did it, the Beach Boys did it, so many others did it. And although I was very much interested in New Age thinking and Eastern practices, I somehow did not pick up TM at the time. But... After graduating from college in the early 70s, I began an intense search, if you will, for meaningful esoteric and occult literature, stuff that's different than just what what I was learning in school. And there was not a a lot out there, uh, certainly not even close to what there is today. Back then, there was usually just one shelf on one bookcase in a local bookstore, and that was it. Now today it's all you know you have whole aisles of new age material and different sections of new age. And interesting whenever I would travel to New York City back then on business I would make sure to step into Weiser's bookstore which specialized in this type of material and it's the only bookstore in the big city that did that. So you get an idea of how difficult it was to find good good stuff back then. At the time I was into the Chinese I Ching as I've talked about the writings of George Gurdjieff and his pupil, P.D. Uspensky, and I also had uh, obviously dabbled in some uh, uh, philosophical readings as well. But in my late 20s, I began to broaden my scope. I was working very hard at the time. I was uh, married, had a family, raising kids, trying to get ahead, and I needed some time to relax, to sort of calm down. I took up jogging, I would go off for a three or four mile run several times a week, and that really helped, but I felt that I needed more. I needed time to relax my brain, my thoughts. I needed something just beyond running. And this brings me to meditation. Now, back then in the 1970s, I became particularly impressed with this fellow Richard Hittleman, who had a syndicated television show on. Sometimes it was on late at night, sometimes it'd be on in the mornings, whatever. And it was on yoga. And he would have demonstrations. He had a model there that would do the actual Hatha yoga exercise, and you'd you'd do it along with her. Uh, But it also included some discussions of meditation as well at the end. And he would even lead a guided meditation at the end of the show for a few minutes. And it's said that this show was very popular, and it introduced yoga to millions of Americans at the time. I'm not sure if it was available worldwide in Europe or um, Asia, but it, it certainly was a, a big thing here in the United States. And what attracted me to the show was there was always a beautiful spiritual message and meditation at the end. And 
uh, I would, I really enjoyed that. And I would exercise right along with him on the TV and then do the guided meditation as well. Well, I decided to get further into, into meditation. And I, I checked him out in the bookstore and he had a book. Uh, one of his books was called Richard Hittleman's 30 day yoga meditation plan. It was quite an interesting book. It outlined a program of Hatha yoga exercises and meditations. There were 30 different meditation practices, a different one to be tried on successive days, each lasting from five to 10 minutes. All but one, all 29 involved, 29 out of the 30 involved looking at some object, such as a flower or a symbol or pronouncing some word. The odd one out was called meditation without seed, which involved just concentrating on not thinking about anything. Following the first 30 days of going through 30 different meditation exercises, the student was then to select the three most promising techniques for further use. If they could not choose, they were to repeat all 30 meditations until the three best emerged. And once they had the three leaders, they were to continue practicing with these three until one emerged as the best. And I narrowed it down to three. I can't remember which the other two were, but... After doing the three for a while, I ended up with meditation without seed as my preferred approach. I'm not sure why, but I just like the clarity of not focusing on something. It's, it seemed to intrigue me. This meant I did not use a mantra like they do in TM or a visual symbol to stare at it and stare at a flame. I didn't say OM. I just cleared my mind. And as words came to me, I treated them as though they were just clouds passing by. I wanted to connect with the sky, not the clouds. Every day I would do about 10 minutes of yoga exercises followed by about 10 minutes of meditation. And I did it at home every day, religiously. I even had my own yoga mat. I did it on business trips. I would never miss a day. I continued doing this meditating for many years. Later on, I think in the 1980s, I read that Deepak Chopra recommended a half-hour meditation twice a day. It was quite a, quite a big jump up from what I was doing, just 10 minutes a day. So as such, I increased my meditation time and continued faithfully doing it. Uh, I do half an hour twice a day. Although often, I have to admit, my evening meditation ended up with me sleeping and Deepak said that was okay. It just meant you were tired. That's all. And sleep is good. So having a busy house with kids, I just needed some quiet time to meditate. So I would put on the headphones to keep out the noise of the kids running around. And I'd listen to a tape of ocean waves rolling. And this was my seed for meditation. It was very calming and soothing. And I, I believe that through meditation, I was connecting with something deeper in, in myself. And it's hard to put it in words. I don't think you can put it in words, but it would block out all the trials and tribulations of the day's work. I, I, it would calm me down. I found it refreshing. And at the same time, I began to become more interested in Hindu philosophy, yoga philosophy, and I read a few books on this, and I was just absolutely astounded at the depth of many Hindu thinkers and schools of yoga. And one of the things I learned in um, meditating without seed is that you cannot completely eliminate your thoughts for any stretch of time. The most you can do is maybe a minute, if you're lucky. 
Some, sometimes you can't even get past 10 or 15 seconds. And, and also saying to yourself, hey, I'm not thinking anything, that is a thought. So any kind of word that pops in, that is a thought. And it's interesting to try to do that exercise, not even as a meditation, just try it. In fact, the Russian mystic George Gurdjieff, who we've talked about several times here, used to use this as an exercise uh, to show how asleep his pupils were. He would ask them to see how long they could go without saying a word in their mind. The pupils soon realized how little actual control they had over managing their thoughts, and that was the purpose of, of this lesson, of this exercise. But let me stress, the key in meditation is not to stop thoughts. The key is not identifying with the th- thoughts, not letting them capture you whole. Um, just let them go, like clouds passing in the sky above. Look at them, say, yeah, I got that, see it's there, but don't get wrapped up into it. So, as I said, meditation is the subject for this episode. And what I want to do is is hopefully show that the practice of meditation has a clear correspondence to Hegel's notion of being and nothing. Now, that's a big statement, but hopefully I'll back it up. It also has correspondence to the Buddhist teaching of nothingness, which I'll, I'll get into. And, of course, meditation is practiced throughout the world, and it's part of the religious traditions around the world. The earliest mentions of it are in the Upanishads, the ancient Indian writing, and the practice plays a very prominent role in both Hinduism and Buddhism. And while we traditionally associate meditation with the East, it's also an important aspect of the Jewish religion, particularly in the old BCE days before Christianity. N.T. Wright, in his book Paul, about the Apostle Paul, uh, states his hypothesis that Saul's intense meditative practices, this was before he converted, well, not converted, but had the, the vision of Jesus. N.T. Wright believes that Paul uh, did intensive meditative practices, and this may have put him in the proper state to receive the vision that he did and go on his own 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 mission on, on the road to Damascus, leading him to become Paul. Now, the key thing, though, that I want to cover is that Meditation allows one to actually get in touch with nothingness. Once we can concentrate on the space between the thoughts, this can provide a powerful mental and physical refresher. But it is more than just a refresher. It can enable a greater, deeper connection to our own lives. Now, I do not believe that meditation is the fast lane to cosmic consciousness. No, the skies do not part. No, there will be no bolts from the blue. You will not rise up and float in the air. But perhaps something more meaningful happens. It allows you to connect with the background of being itself. And this is so key. It allows you to connect with nothingness. As we've stated here often, being and nothing are the two predecessors to becoming. We covered this explicitly in the very last episode. Episode 58, Hegel's Becoming, What It Means, Why It's Unique, and Why It Matters. Yes, there is a background to the voice in our head, and there is perhaps a lot there in that background, and that's important to realize. When we meditate, we can get in touch with ourselves as living creatures. We can have total awareness of our aliveness at the moment. We are living now. We're the beneficiaries of millions of years of previous ancestors, And what have we inherited in this moment? 
can we silently get in touch with the wisdom of the ages? What are the voices of the past whispering to us? Now, you're not going to hear voices, but you know what I mean. The key thing in meditation is, is to quiet your mind so you can sense these things and appreciate these things, what's gone before and what and what the what what the present moment holds for you. And it's not to think about these things or to analyze them. That's left brain thinking. You don't want to break things down and analyze things into the component parts. There's no right or wrong, no either or, no judgmental this or that. There's just the experience of life itself, the process of life itself. Now, of course, everyone's experience with meditation will be different. But what I presented here is the basic mindset for undertaking meditation. And to share my belief that in meditation, one is getting in touch with something that is real. Being and nothing are both real, together, as moments of becoming. Now, just let me back up a bit. Everything needs a background in order to be seen. This is what Hegel means by determinant. It's a negation. The background is negated by the object that is perceived, but it is still there. Both the background and the object are there, foreground and background. And nothing is what makes being determinate, as we discussed in the last episode. If there's no nothing, then being would just be nothing at all. To stick with the sky example, the sky allows us to perceive the clouds. We see a cloud, but the sky remains. 20th century media scholar Marshall McLuhan, and we've discussed him often, he has a concept called figure and ground, which relates to this. Particularly, if you want to go to one episode, episode 21, The Rise and Return of Tribalism, Technology, McLuhan and Hegel, where we cover McLuhan in a lot of detail. And as I said, for McLuhan, the figure was what jumped out at you and the ground allowed you to perceive it. Being jumps out at you and nothing allows you to be part of it. Oftentimes we take the ground for granted. A light bulb in a room provides light for us to see, to see each other, to read, etc. The light in the room is the ground in which we see things, the figures we are looking at. This is also true with media in which McLuhan specialized. It is the television that allows us to watch television shows. It is the internet which allows us to communicate on social media. Now, McLuhan held that the medium was as important as the message, perhaps more important. We tend to forget about the television set and what's going on. We concentrate on the show, but it's the television itself that's part of this process. Now, I don't want to divert too much into McLuhan. Perhaps we can do it in another episode. But the point is, nothing is just as important as being. It what allows it's what allows being to be being. The river bed allows the river. The air we breathe allows life. I think you get what I mean. Now, just a little bit on Buddhism. The reason is that the notion of nothingness is often associated with Buddhism. As most of you know, Buddhism is a religion and a philosophy that began with the teaching of Siddhartha. Gautama in ancient India in the fourth, in the fifth to fourth century BCE. Now, Buddhism is a huge topic and it, it's, it's got a very rich tradition in, in both philosophical thought and meditation and everything. It's the world's fourth largest religion behind Christianity, Islam, and Hinduism and has a, over a half a billion followers. And maybe someday I can devote more time to it. I would really like to do that. 
But what I want to focus on now is the notion of nothingness, which is often associated with Buddhism, and I should point out, often associated incorrectly. It's not that nothingness in Buddhism is some other realm, some black hole. Actually, is much more along the lines that we've been discussing. Nothingness or emptiness does not mean nothing exists at all. It is more the things we see, the figures that we grasp onto, do not have a reality existence in their own right. They are dependent on that background. The river is dependent on the riverbed. As we discussed in the last episode, even the reality of the present moment does not exist in its own right. It is both being and nothing. It's always becoming. When we try to latch onto a thing and ignore the bigger picture, we don't understand what that thing is. In isolation, it is meaningless. Everything is relational. This is a key part of Hegel's philosophy that we've discussed here so often. Isolating is left-brain thinking. And that is a major problem in the world today. We are overrun with left-brain thinking. And we, we talked a lot about left-brain, right-brain dichotomy, but the specific episode is episode 10, The Divided Brain and the Unhappy Consciousness. Okay, now on to Hegel. Although Eastern religions were beginning to be studied in Hegel's day, certainly, there was still little available on Buddhism. And to show to show this, let me read a quote by Hegel regarding Buddhism. This is from his Philosophy of Religion. Quote, When we view the whole world, we can only say that everything is and nothing more. We are neglecting all specialty. And instead of absolute plenitude, we have absolute emptiness. The same stricture is applicable to those who define God to be mere being. A definition not a whit better than that of the Buddhists who make God to be naught, and who from that principle draw the further conclusion that self-annihilation is the means by which man becomes God, end quote. Okay, let's unpack this. In the first sentence, Hegel is reiterating that when we say everything is, we are neglecting specialty, and hence we end up with nothing. He then goes on to say the same about God. If God is all and everything, then God is nothing. He then, however, moves on and mistakenly claims that this is what Buddhists believe, that God is nothing, the other half of the uh, of the equation, a nihilistic view. Now, what he says about being in God is what his whole philosophy is about. But his nihilistic interpretation of Buddhism was based on the limited knowledge that was available to him in his day. For example, this is from an 18th century book on, on Chinese by Jean Baptiste de Halda. And this was available in Hegel's day. And let me read it to you. Quote, they teach that a vacuum or nothing is the principle of all things, that it is from nothing that all things are produced and to which they all return. So to live happily, we must continually strive by meditation and frequent victories over ourselves to become like this principium and to this end, accustom ourselves to do nothing, to desire nothing, to perceive nothing, and to think on nothing, end quote. So it's not surprising that Hegel would share such a view if these are the sources such as these that he, that he, he could get his hands on. But this is not the true picture. Hegel's comments on being in nothing, God in nothing, are spot on correct. But on, the, on Buddhism, he doesn't have the full picture. Let me continue on. There's a 
quote, a little further down, quote, in saying that God is only the supreme being and nothing more, for this is really declaring him to be the same negativity as above. The nothing which the Buddhists make the universal principle, as well as the final aim and goal of everything, is the same abstraction, end quote. So again, Hegel's saying more or less the same thing. Uh, he's correct about God is, is more than just the supreme being, but he's incorrect in saying that nothing is the goal of Buddhism. Okay, let's let's summarize what, what we've what we've covered. I've shown that meditation is an attempt to quiet the mind, to see the big picture, to comprehend both being and nothing, to see the figure and the ground, the clouds and the sky, to feel aliveness in all its glory, and also know that for the individual it is fleeting, just like the cloud, just like a single cloud. Now I'm reminded of a quote that was in the movie Patton uh, about U.S. General George Patton during his time in World War II. It starred George C. Scott. It was toward the end of the movie. Let me read it to you. Quote, this is Patton speaking. Quote, For over a thousand years, Roman conquerors returning from the wars enjoyed the honor of triumph, a tumultuous parade, and the procession came trumpeteers, musicians, and strange animals from conquered territories together with carts laden with treasure and captured armaments. The conquerors rode in a triumphal chariot, the dazed prisoners walking in chains before him. Sometimes his children, robed in white, stood with him in the chariot or rode the trace horses. A slave stood behind the conqueror, holding a golden crown and whispering in his ear a warning that all glory is fleeting." End quote. Although individual clouds come and go, individual glory comes and goes, but clouds themselves will remain. Human achievement will remain. The present moment is fleeting, but the continuation of the present moment will remain. Well, that's it for this episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Thank you once again so much for listening to these episodes, to this podcast. As always, all references will be supplied on the podcast's Facebook page at Cunning of Geist, and eventually a transcript will be posted there as well. Please be sure to check in on that page because I post there often in between episodes. If you're on Twitter, you can follow me there as well, also at Cunning of Geist. And please be sure to tell your like-minded friends about this podcast as well. The more the merrier. Spread the word. This is Gregory Novak. This is the Cunning of Geist. See you next time.